Thank you. Yeah, so um, basically I want to talk about scarcity and socialism in this talk. Uh, we'll start with the scarcity side. So in, um, in Mises' famous economic calculation problem, uh, th there is discussion about money being a sort of uh, indication of, of scarcity and desirability. And that kind of sounds similar to, to supply and demand. So, um, if a particular, so you have like a sort of economy where people on, on a local level for their, for themselves know what it is they desire and they're interested in purchasing, uh, obtaining other uh, products and the or products or services and, and the only information they have about those products and services is the price of of the that particular product or service so they don't know what goes in it if there's any particular issues or or a variety of different problems all they have is one number and that's the price um so when they have that number they can make local decisions with regards to should they uh buy that product or service or should they find an alternative or should they increase their own price if they want to make, if this is just uh, one element of the product or service that they want to provide, and um, they can make that decision locally. Now, if, uh, if you're a socialist and you're interested in making a moneyless, classless, stateless society, then first you have to get rid of the money part, and when you do that, you lose that particular uh, signal, that particular bit of information. And in addition, you have to start moving all that bits of information to a central planner who can then decide and prioritize when, when and where uh, to send resources in the economy. So uh, long story short, it, it didn't work out. There were a lot of issues with centrally planning the economy. And Mises, in his 1920-something uh, paper, already said that it is uh, an impossibility and uh, basically said that it is too much information. The more products you have uh, across the more people make it an impossible thing to calculate. It's difficult to know the desirability. It's difficult to know the priority. It's difficult to know the scarcity um, of and how to allocate when and where. Now, some people may recall that the USSR lasted for about 70 years, so obviously they managed to do something. And largely what they, what they did was they allocated prices from their neighbors. So they're looking at uh, other countries close to them or countries around the world. They took the price that they had for that product at the time. And with a bit of uh, tweaking um, with regards to things like uh, uh, social programs that they wanted to implement, they gave a sort of semi-price to something that they could then um, allocate resources. But obviously they didn't do a good enough job. And in general, most people would say that, that socialism failed in this particular endeavor, meaning that the way that socialists tried to get rid of money resulted in scarcity or resulted in uh, bad incentives with regards to uh, innovation and, and the production of consumer products that meets pe people's desirability and, and things of that nature. So in general, uh, 
Not a lot of people disagree on the fact that the socialism in this regard failed. But um, let me just quickly check my notes. But what, what do we have today? Today we, we have a sort of agreement that socialism failed, but we have a sort of utilitarian or socialist-flavored utilitarianism um, that, we that we have today. So basically, if you imagine like a sort of bar where like the bar can go up, up or down. So we have two bars that we discussed already, which is scarcity and desirability. And um, what the people today are saying is that if, if a particular product is very scarce and very desirable, then they would like the government to provide that. So, so specifically, the division is wants and needs. And the argument is that if, um, if something is highly scarce and highly desirable, it is exploitative for people in the economy to not have that. So now we're adding a third bar called exploitation. And in, in essence, you can also look at it as fairness, this, this, this bar. So, we have, so due to like the socialist influence on the culture, we've added a third, a third bar for exploitation. And when, and again, when the scarcity and desirability is very high, that constitutes a need. And for example, healthcare, how can I, uh, if I had an accident, how can I uh, pick and choose which hospital to go to? Therefore, the government needs to provide it because it's, it's, it's an extreme, it's, an, it's something I classify as, as a need and it shouldn't be part of the market. And in general, this is what we call uh, ideology market fit. Uh, obviously, the market works to some degree, and, and, and removing the market in the case of socialism did not work. Um, but we still want our ideology to influence the market here and there. And we decide to, uh, and utilitarianism, which is popular on the left, or progressivism, or mixed economies, e even neoliberal to some degree have elements of utilitarianism. Uh, decide that there are some parts of the economy that shouldn't be in the economy and that the government should provide those services. So now, in terms of having discussions, it is harder because it is a more entrenched position. Uh, well, not, no, one, no one essentially is arguing, or very few people are arguing, to go to full socialism where you can then say, well, look at all the people that died, look at all the inefficiencies, look at all the so on and so forth. They're saying, we like the markets, but we just feel that these parts of the markets are immoral, and we don't want to. We don't want the markets to provide these services. We want the government to do that. So, the, the markets can provide wants, can provide iPhones, can provide computers, but as soon as it gets to like a high scarcity and high desirability, then we want the the government to to take over. So things like healthcare, basically, it's not even it's not even things that necessarily make sense to some degree. So for example, you can say healthcare uh, should be a, a human right, a right in quotation, but uh, things like food and water is provided by the market and they're doing very well. And food and water is technically a higher need than healthcare. Like you would need food and water before you, you would need healthcare. Um, and for example, if in the future internet becomes popular, Someone is going to say internet is a human right, and the government should 
either mandated or, or provided themselves for everyone in the in the economy because it just should be outside the market so um here it's a, it's a more entrenched position again this is an element of scarcity and uh and uh implication of of exploitation if something is scarce but it's just more difficult to argue because you have this sort of situation now i'm going to jump to uh to utilitarianism so again palate slight palate cleanser because uh um this is going to carry to to the end um the i the idea with utilitarianism came about with Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. Original flavor utilitarianism was about uh, legal and philosophy of law. Well, basically, the idea is when they said uh, in utilitarianism, um, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. The context is in a, in a legal sense that the laws that you you pass. Um, do do those things. Um, so you know, Jeremy Bentham was big on women's rights. He was he had some element of of uh, prisoners prison reforms. He had animal rights. He had one other thing I'm forgetting about, but it, it was all in the in the political and legal context. And and basically the idea was a was sort of legal and political equality, which is I'm sure I'm sure. The uh, objectivists here can can easily identify with. However, even Bentham said said that on the flip side of it, that um, he did say something along the line. I'm paraphrasing that uh, uh, property rights are nonsense on stilts, and he and he meant that in a sense that he didn't buy into the God given uh, rights, and he certainly didn't buy into the idea of someone having rights could hold everyone else in society hostage in, in, in I'm paraphrasing. So if, if, so even if someone has a, a right to a particular property, if, if that would help more people to, for them not to have that right, then they should not have that right. So, but, but in general, apart from that extreme case, in general, he was for uh, legal and political equality. Over time with a guy called G.E. Moore, uh, they inserted, uh, this was also when socialism was very much in the air in Europe, um, they introduced uh, e economic, economic condition to utilitarianism, such, things such as um, helping the poor, and uh, I think even progressively taxing the rich. So, and we're moving away from uh, from political equality now. We're, we're, we're kind of including again economic equality, or I think this is where um, positive rights developed in this particular context. So it's not it's and it's moving away from what Bentham saw originally. I'm not sure if you would necessarily hate the idea, but it's it's different. And 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 uh, Stuart Mill obviously. Um, later developed Fabian Socialism, which is in the UK, uh, the Fabian Society, which is sort of like incremental socialism. And, and a lot of the people who, who you would debate would say I'm, they're in favor for incremental socialism. Um, so just like to, to have an understanding of how it developed now, 
to some degree, this sort of utilitarianism is still it could be considered neoliberal. It's it's not uh, the, he- the more heavy-handed um, thing we have today. It's it's like, well, in extreme circumstances, we should help we should help the poor and we should tax the rich a bit more. But not but still, rights are important. Uh, um, political equality is important. Some some eco- some economic changes are are needed for uh, the happiness for the greatest happiness for the greatest good, but in general the political equality and then the legal stuff was more was was paramount. And uh, what we have today is basically the osmosis of socialism into utilitarianism because socialism failed. Uh, the people who you will talk to online are are basically hanging on to the the socialism that that uh, is absorbed by osmosis into utilitarianism today. Obviously, it's more amplified, uh, but um, just so you understand the context of where it arrived, where it came from. And um, basically today, um, we have a sort of difficult situation. So so I just want to point out that, that already just, just to argue with people like that, you're, they are in a more entrenched position because they are not arguing for socialism for everything, which you can have an easier argument, their argument for the government to intervene in um, in specific things which are more extreme. So it's already an interesting position. But in addition, we essentially have the way I see it, two forms of philosophies that you are um, you have to fight at the same time. So you have uh, altruism and you have uh, socialism. And, and I and I realize that some people will say, "Hey, isn't that the same thing?" But I'm just separating them for a second, so because I, I do see a difference. Um, so basically, we have two two ways of looking at it. So, if we were to say that ut- that utilitarianism had inf- was influenced by uh, altruism, and it's more relevant today because original flavor utilitarianism had a sort of ca- calculus. For calcula- calculating utility, that's that's out the window. No one can actually apply that anymore. Uh, so it's sort of the way I understand it, or maybe this is more consequentialism, but it is more like on the ethics, the underlying ethics of it. It's still an ethical framework, but the underlying ethic ethics of it is a sort of intuition. Like this feels right, this feels not right, and uh, if I and the and the the poor uh, starving doesn't feel right. So it's a sort of moral, uh, unreflective gut feeling or moral intuitionalism. intuitionalism. And um, basically that, the way I, I see it, that, that's a sort of altruism. And a lot of people argue, argue that it arrived from, uh, from the religious, uh, ethical lessons in, in the culture. That doesn't mean that all religious ethical ethics were absorbed into utilitarianism. Some were ignored, but the foundation would be basically a sermon on the mount, in my opinion. And uh, and that's for, and that's for the poor. Now, if, if it was the case that we are saying, look, we have the poor in society, we need to tax everyone a, a bit of money, we need to collect money, and we need to help the poor because that's the right thing to do. That would be one thing, but what we have today is that we we actually apply socialism in 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 a different context. So let's say at at the bottom of a graph you have altruism to help the poor, 
And at the top of the graph, you have socialism, which is basically tax the rich. So it's now no longer the case that we need to collect money together to help the poor. Now we're just, well, the rich have money. So says socialism. They have plenty of money. They hold, they hold money. They hold all of the money in society or most of the money in society. They should be able easily to make the poor not poor anymore. So it's no longer the case in altruism that, sorry, in utilitarianism that uh, that we we kind of do something together. No, we're just moving money from one group to another and and, and equalizing it in in that sense. Now, the the two philosophy that this is basically a two prong attack. You have to argue with uh, socialism against socialism, and you have to argue against altru- altruism. And if you target the one, they will. Morton Bailey to the other. So if, for example, you say, well, the rich are productive and they produce a lot and we need them in, the, in, our, in our economy and not to, not to flee the country into tax havens, and they'll say, well, you just hate the poor. And if you argue about uh, we need be- better ways of helping the poor and we need better welfare systems, e- even just like on a neoliberal kind of argument, um, they'll say, you just love the rich. So it's it's a it's a very entrenched and two pronged attack position to just socialism or just altruism. It's 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 it keeps moving, and it's difficult to to pinpoint an attack. And it's in, and in addition to that, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure you encounter a lot of situations where people um, think you're a bad person, and they know they don't want to deal with you anymore. And you, you can see that you know with, with social justice warriors. But and I think this comes from this dynamic, where you sort of, where you have these two philosophies. And by the way, I, I think I think the socialism element—it's not a—it's like it's it's the dialectical lens where you you have a lens of how you see the world, and you see the world where the uh, rich have power, they control society, they control the government, and every problem that you can think of through this lens, the rich are are to blame and uh, then you have at the bottom you have you have uh, altruism which is the ethic that says the poor it's not right that the poor are poor we should help them that it, it's a bad thing so in this sort of situation um with this like epistemological lens and an ethical from from socialism and an ethical uh ethics from altruism uh, it, it's like a sort of two again like a two prong prong attack but it's much much sharper, and it's it's more emotional to to deal with. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. If it was just the case of of helping the poor, then you know religious people have done that. You help the poor, that's fine. If it was just the case of uh, socialism, and let, let's let's just take an example. It's not a one to one example, but uh, just bear with me. Let's say that socialists are conspiracy theorists against the rich, but but let's say conspiracy th- theorists in general. Conspiracy theorists are not um, are not like a so- they're not a social justice warrior. They're not uh, emotional. They don't see other people as as evil outright. They they're like, well, I think the Earth is flat, and and NASA was lying to us, and but they're not like uh, emotionally activated in a sense. They're just like, well, I have this quirky view. And I think people are lying, but I'm not gonna, you know, run riots in the street and protest against NASA or anything like that. Um, but when you when you when you connect the two, 
you sort of get like a a psychological effect, which I I think I I think it's called deindividuation. I just want to read. So this is more psychology. I just want to read out something I I got off uh, off the internet. Uh, hold on. When someone feels that their sense of justice and justice, I mean here, um, in this particular example, you know, oh, the rich people can help can help the poor. It's it's unjust that they're not. So if you if you feel that your sense of justice has been violated, it it can cause a strong emotional response. This is because justice is closely tied to our values and and beliefs about what is right and wrong. And when these values are threatened, it can lead to feelings of anger, frustration, and even outrage. Now, I personally think that if if someone is uh, gets angry a lot, the the sense of the value of justice has been violated. I feel like n- now they're activated, and and now they have basically they see the world as black and white. Um, that those those in power run the world. Everything that's wrong is because of them. And I see all these poor people, and that and that's wrong. That's not the way it should be. And, and now you're activated, and you're a sort a sort of social justice warrior. And, and you can apply it to to other mechanisms, like you can say uh, feminism. Uh, those in power are are the patriarchy, are, are the men. You, you just see the world like that. Every bit of every bit of new data and information goes through your lens, and your sense of of justice has been violated. Similarly to to racism, those in power of a particular race and those not in power, but it's it's not fair. We need to fix it. We need to take the power away from those who have power. We need to equally distribute it. Same for colonialism with the Western values and and all that kind of jazz that you hear now and day on television. I feel this is the origin of it. So you again, so you have basically two philosophies that you're fighting against. One is one is more epistemological, one is ethical. And um yeah, that's uh, that's what I was able to come up with on my research.